Beautiful, Nell. Thank you. Um, let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 1. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, we'd love to get those from you and we will pray for you this week. We come to Romans 1, which we've said in previous times, this is not for the faint of heart. As Paul is making the case for the universal guilt of humanity and what is involved with that. Some commentators have seen a parallel between Romans 1 and the book of Jonah. Because both describe the downward slide of sin and rebellion. The book of Jonah is the account of a prophet who tried to run away from God, which is ridiculous. But he tried and didn't get very far. He had rejected God's call to go to Nineveh and to preach. He hated the Ninevites and didn't care to be a part of that saving endeavor. And so he went downhill until God turned him around and got him going in the right direction. So we're told four times in the book of Jonah early on, he went down to Joppa, which was on the coast. He went down into the ship. He went down into the inner part of the ship. And after he had been cast overboard, he went down into the sea and down into the belly of the fish. The last verses of Romans 1 uh, describe a plunge of a different kind. It's, uh, It's the downward slide and it's massive as it describes the entire human race. If somehow you have thought in this verse by verse through Romans 1 that this is speaking to someone else, uh, you need to, to know that that's, that's not true. This is describing all of us, the human race. And apart from God's redeeming grace in our life, we would slide down, down, down into hell itself. The Apostle Paul ends this chapter with a lengthy variety of sins. The list is a catalog of 21 twisted, painful transgressions that mark the human experience. And so it's a sad life history, but it is the experience of all who run from God. And maybe this morning, that's where you are. You're running from Him. Uh, That'll never work. And the hope of the gospel is that you would not run from him, but you would run to him. And by faith, you would see what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ, who is humanity's only savior. And so Romans 1 is making the case that all men and women run from God. And as we try to rearrange the universe in a way that fits our fancy, we suppress the truth of what God has revealed God has revealed himself in a general way, not in a saving knowledge, but in a general way, he has revealed that he is all-powerful, he has revealed his divine attributes through creation itself. And the guilt of humanity is we've taken that revelation, we've suppressed it, and have followed idols of our own liking. And so we come to Romans chapter 1, and I, I, I want to just take the first segment of our message this morning to review this wrath of abandonment. We read in verse 18 that that God's wrath has been revealed from heaven. That the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then we read a series of God gave them up. God gave them up. Verse 24, verse 26, God gave them up. Verse 28, God gave them up. In verse 24, he's talking about fornication and adultery and sexual sins, why would he highlight those to the exclusion of others? 
I think maybe because they demonstrate graphically a departure from God's holiness, God's standards. God gave them up to the lust in their hearts and their impurity. And so when you see a culture sliding downward, when you see a nation sliding downward, inevitably they've had a sexual revolution of some kind, which is what we've seen on the American landscape since the 1960s. So we must admit that the LGBTQ plus community, and by the way, I want to put an asterisk there, that every time I reference the LGBTQ plus community, they're not my enemies. I'm not mentioning them as someone uh, in a social war. I'm just identifying a worldview that is at odds with Romans 1. So we must admit with the LGBTQ plus community that they have a point in charging the church with hypocrisy as we put on battle regalia against homosexuality and virtually ignore adultery, fornication, pornography, divorce, gluttony, and a host of other sins within our ranks. So the church is often paralyzed by her own immoralities, and it's a call for us to repent first. So God gave them up, verse 26, to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations with those who are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves and themselves due penalty for their error. And so Paul is describing here the downward path of a declining society and he moves to sexual perversions. He mentions lesbianism, male homosexuality for centuries. These subjects were just hardly ever spoken of. But today they are displayed in such shameless detail in every avenue of news and entertainment and sports and even in grade school. He mentions two words here. Natural is, is, the, is the important word here. Paul uses it in verse 27, and the opposite, unnatural, in verse 26. And he, he used it to describe yet another step along the downward slide. Fornication and adultery, which are in view in verse 24, are not unnatural sins, for they are not against nature. That's his point. Of course, they're true sins. They break God's moral law. They defile the body. They're stepping outside the boundaries of what God has said. They result in impurity and the degrading of our bodies, but they're not unnatural. On the contrary, they are in one sense quite natural. And they're accomplished by using one's body in a natural way. And it seems to beg that there would need to be revelation in order to to define the boundaries of that, which God gives to us in the Ten Commandments when He says, you shall not commit adultery. But not so with homosexuality. Paul says here in Romans 1, it's unnatural. And it's accomplished by using one's body in an unnatural way against nature. In the first case, we may well need, again, the revelation of God's Word to tell us, but Perhaps that's the whole point. At no other point in this presentation of chapter 1 is his discussion of the results of our rebellion. Paul speaks now specifically, men committing indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their perversion, which I think the point is that unnatural sins carry with them unnatural 
consequences. And so this is the ultimate in human defiance and why it's God's wrath of abandonment as people do what they want to do. And the ultimate expression of that is homosexuality. In verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. And what that really means is they did not not acknowledge God any longer. God gave them over to a depraved mind. The moral faculty can't function. The conscience is gone. It's seared. They They do things that are not proper. And so culture becomes pornographic and perverted to the core. So I want to just say... As a review, when God said, when it says God gave them up, that we would understand what this means. That's not freedom, friends. Some would say, oh, God gave them up. That's exactly what we want. Leave us alone. We don't like you. But that's not what it means. It has a horrible backstop. The wrath of God's abandonment is seen when he removes his sustaining hand. God holds this universe together. It says in the New Testament that He holds the universe together with His Word. And if we were to let go of that for one nanosecond, the whole thing would collapse. So there are ways that God's common grace is seen in this world. And for God to give them up, to let them go in their own way, that's not liberation. There's a judgment day to come. So God gave them up. He turns his back on a society. Opportunities for repentance and salvation are lost. And an irredeemable callousness develops in the hearts of people. A removal of that restraining grace. And God lets go and society is released to pursue its sin. Homosexual activists Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen revealed the simplicity of their strategy when they wrote in their book, After the Ball, How America Will Conquer Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the 90s. That came out in 1990. And they said, almost any behavior begins to look normal if you're exposed to it enough. And that's been the strategy for the last 30 years to the point where we are right now. Erwin Lutzer, and I love this quote from Dr. Lutzer, he was not exaggerating when he wrote, we cannot list all the advances of the gay agenda except to say that virtually everything they have wanted has come to pass. And so in the face of these developments, we have the church of Jesus Christ. You have people who love the Lord Jesus Christ and want to live for him in this world facing this kind of challenge. God has given us a prophetic role and what I want us to understand today is that while we may be on the losing end of it in all, virtually all forms of media, and often we hear, you people are on the wrong side of history. Indeed, we may be, but we want to be on the right side of the living God. And ultimately, that's what it's about. It's about truth and the living God. What are we going to allow to form our worldview God gave them up. It sounds as if God simply just let go. James Boyce was helpful here. He said, it sounds as if God uh, let people drift off to nowhere, like releasing a porcelain pitcher in space. However, it's not that God gives the human race up to nothing, but rather that he gives it over to the consequences of the rebellion, the sinful directions it's taken. 
It's like releasing a porcelain pitcher not into space in which it would drift out into nowhere, but onto earth where you release it from your hand to the law of gravity. And when you do, it falls downward, 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 and breaks. New ground this morning. Number two, if you're looking at the insert, our depravity... That's the message we don't want to hear. Our depravity, we don't want to hear about that. Verse 29, notice it says here, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, and deceit, maliciousness. So here, our depravity, the message we don't want to hear about, which if we don't want to hear about it, it it's, it's impossible to ever understand the joy and the beauty of the gospel. If I don't come to terms with my depravity and the sin nature that I have and my rebellion against God, the gospel will never be appealing to me. It'll be grouped in with a bunch of other self-help programs. But this is God's rescue for a rebel human race. A.T. Robertson noted um, that this phrase, they were filled it's the state of completion filled to the brim with these sins, is the idea. These verses depict what theologians call total depravity. And we don't want to hear about depravity in our day. Entire ministries are built on false gospels and messages that do not save because they do not address humanity's root problem. They'll preach 30 de- three decades and you'll, you'll never hear a message on Romans 1. Why? Because it doesn't sell to the people. And I'll just mention one, Joel Osteen, who says that he never talks about sin because people are beaten down enough in this world. Well, we're beaten down, that's for sure. But unless we come to see our sin, we'll never know God's remedy for our problems. He said we take a positive approach to Christianity. No, sir, you're just a motivational speaker. That's what you are. So many preachers speak of our goodness and the human spirit and self-improvement and the comfort of God without speaking of the main issue that makes the gospel glorious, that God saves sinners. It's a trustworthy statement, worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And because of that, the airwaves are filled with false hopes and false prophets, and people wanting their ears tickled. We do not take passages like this seriously. We think humanity just needs a little more help when the Bible says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We need a rescue, friends. We think these verses are talking about somebody else. They're talking about us. Every human being who bears the image of God. In Adam, we are lost in our sin and without hope in this world apart from God's mercy. Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power 
of the air, but God who is rich in mercy has made you alive in Jesus Christ. The text again says they were filled, and I, I want to emphasize this for a second or maybe even third time this morning. This is not referring uh, to other people. Paul's talking to the church, those who have been redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ. Here he's talking about an unredeemed humanity. They were filled. Again, A.T. Robertson said, Paul gives vivid touches to this composite photograph of the God-abandoned soul. So, what does he mention? He mentions four sins right off the bat, which seem to be uh, cover categories for our problem. There are 21 in all uh, in these verses. But he mentions unrighteousness. He, this is the same word used in verse 18. Ungodliness and unrighteousness are used to designate two great categories of human evil. Ungodliness refers to sins against God. It could rightly be put in the first four commandments in the Ten Commandments. No other gods, no idols, don't take the name of the Lord in vain, and uh, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. But unrighteousness is a reference to sin of man against man. That's commandments 5 through 10. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. And don't covet what your neighbor has. How have you done in keeping those? Am I talking to one this morning who might say an answer to that question? I'm pretty good. You need to think again. Especially as Jesus enlarges our understanding of sin, not just in what we do, but he says it, it, it comes from our heart. If I think these things, I'm guilty of them. And so we begin to feel the weight of that. And that's good. That's what the law should do. The law should slay us that we might run to the cross. In these last verses, Paul lists examples of unrighteousness. Second word he mentions or sin is evil. It's just a general term in the New Testament for badness. It describes our pull to do evil. You know, we get that for free, don't we? Even as a Christian, we thought, why am I dealing with that thought? Why did that come out of my mouth? It describes our pull to do evil. I remember when Gwen taught third grade when I was in seminary. She taught at a Lutheran school on, on uh, Canal Street in New Orleans. And there was this little boy named Blake. And he was just full of mischief. And one day he came into the room and he took the light switch as they were coming in and went up and down, up and down, up and down with the light switch, you know. And, uh, and, and Gwen asked, Blake, why did you do that? He said, I just have urges. <laughs> All of us just have urges, don't we? We need a Savior. Eliphaz, Job's so-called friend, said in Job 5.7, For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground, but man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. We too are evil. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, which I've referred to many times, was a Russian intellectual who became a Christian in a Soviet gulag under the reign of communism. He spoke straightforwardly. He said, 
uh, on why 60 million perished in the, in the revolution. Men have forgotten God, he said. That's why all this has happened. Solzhenitsyn went on to say, it was only there as I lay on rotting prison straw in some camp in Siberia that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good and gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes right through every human heart and through all human hearts. So bless you prison for having been in my life because I've seen my need for God's grace in it. Thirdly, Paul mentions covetousness or greed. The desire is always to want a little bit more and then to envy your neighbor for what he has. We live in a culture of envy, of social jealousy that we need to do battle with in our heart. We should not envy anyone or be covetous of anyone. He he mentions malice or depravity, deliberate wickedness that delights in doing other people harm. It's hateful. So these first four sins put together in Paul's list, they're sins with which the human race is filled. Now, notice with me thirdly, one toxic list, one toxic list that is a preview of hell itself. By the way, I'm not really happy with my title, A Picture of Hell on Earth, because regardless of how bad it would ever be here, It doesn't compare to the scriptural descriptions of hell that doesn't last for a year or a century or a millennium, but forever, where their worm does not die and there's no relief. But here's a precursor of it. Notice these sins in verse 29 mentions they are gossips. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And so I I would put these in a category of hatred of others. He mentions envy. Paul has spoken of greed. People never satisfied with what they have, but instead clamor for more, often at the cost of others. Envy is related to greed, but it goes beyond it. He mentions gossip. I read an interesting article recently by Matt Mitchell, resisting gossip, winning the war of a wagging tongue. You don't want to be a gossip, Mitchell says. There's no upside to being one. Gossip hurts neighbors, divides friends, and damages reputations and relationships. The Bible labels gossips as untrustworthy and meddlesome. All too often, however, you and I do want to gossip. Gossiping can be fun and addictive and provide a short burst of guilty pleasure. The book of Proverbs refers the words of the gossip as delicious morsels. We get bored and we want to entertain ourselves by snacking on the shameful stories of other people's lives. Gossip can be hard to resist. It's burying bad news behind someone's back out of a bad heart. It should remind us of our depravity. He mentioned slanderers. 
To speak against is literally what the Greek says. Gossip in secret, slander. Gossip is in secret often. Slander takes it public. And with social media, you can go full bore, can't you? Trash your neighbor. Trash anybody. Not for the people of God. That's the mark of an unredeemed people. A depraved humanity, haters of God. This seems misplaced and should, uh, it should be placed back maybe in, in verse 29, but it's here because the sin of slander and the sin of pride, ultimately slandering God is involved too. Saying things about God that are not true. Putting Him on the witness stand and hurling accusations against Him. Maligning His character. Falsifying His word. You know, there's a warning in the book of Revelation. Woe to those who misrepresent this prophecy. Woe to them. Don't play with God's word. That's the mark of a fallen humanity to malign his character, to blame God for the difficulties of this life. Insolent, he mentions. The word here is hubris, pride, but a special species of pride, pride that sets us against God. In the ancient world, this is the worst of flaws. Pride out of control, he mentions in the second category, haughty, boastful, in verse 30. He mentions inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Let me mention inventors of evil, sadistic thoughts and practices. Nero of the first century was, was known for this when he tarred Christians and set them on fire to be lights in his garden. All of the hateful, malicious, vicious things that you see in this world. Inventors of evil. You should have a real check in your spirit if you're drawn to movies that magnify that. Disobedient to parents. A lot of children in this room today. I love that, don't you? A lot of teenagers. Maybe one of the struggles in your life right now is you're, you're having a hard time listening to your mother or your father. You need to learn now to honor them. God has, God has promised great things for those who honor. Honor your father and your mother. I know there are circumstances that make life difficult, maybe the absence of a father, maybe other issues in the family that would make that complicated, but the general promise, the general command and promise is to honor your father and your mother. We should, we should set the pace with that in, in body life as part of our witness. This sin, disobedient to parents, was common in the ancient world as it is today. It's mentioned elsewhere in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 1.9, disobedient to parents. In fact, in this text in 1 Timothy 1.9, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for those who strike their fathers and mothers. In 2 Timothy 3.1, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents. Israel, under the theocracy of God, God gave in the law that anyone who would dishonor and rebel 
against their parents. And we're not talking about little toddlers. We're talking about grown children who would dishonor their parents, got a free escort outside the gate, and guess what they did? They stoned them as a statement of what God thinks of that. To dishonor parents, to be sneaky and rebellious behind them. Deal with that, children, in your heart. Take that to the Lord. Teenager, the time to deal with that is now. Right now. It's a sign that you need Christ. And then we look at this fourth category in this toxic list of 21 sins that we all share in common, that are the mark of unredeemed humanity, really a a total collapse of character. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. To be foolish is to be without understanding. He mentions the same word is used in verse 21. They became futile in their thinking. A fool has said in their heart, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Faithless, the King James renders it, I believe, covenant breakers, false to their engagements. They don't keep their word. They don't honor their vows, like marriage vows. What a glorious time last night here, seeing Johnny and Angel become one in Jesus Christ, to hear them express vows that by God's grace and for His glory they will keep all the days of their life. That's a picture of Jesus Christ's relationship with His church The mark of unredeemed humanity, faithless, covenant breakers. They treat covenants as tissue paper, heartless, ruthless. And so you put all of that in one big bowl and you have a picture of hell itself. And notice maybe a crowning fault That in total depravity, we become cheerleaders of rebellion. Cheerleaders of rebellion. Look at verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. (laughs) So there is within the conscience of human beings a recognition. These things are wrong. The emperor doesn't have any clothes on. It's wrong. The elephant is in the room. Would somebody please say, these things are insane. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they flip the script entirely, and they not only do them, but they give hearty approval to those who come to the trough and eat whole hog at them. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So the, the point of Romans 1 is that all the world has received the revelation of the living God, and we have suppressed that revelation and embraced idolatry. In verse 32, the unbelieving world knows, not in a saving way, we're never, we're never born again through general revelation. Nobody can ever be saved by looking into an empty bird's nest or an oak tree, or a mountain range. What does that communicate? That there's an awesome God 
who in his eternal power has created these things, and because he's created them, including me, I'm answerable to him. I need to know him. They know that God condemns such evil practices, and they do it anyway. They have urges with no grace, and it comes for free. That's what it means to be lost. They're cheerleaders for every flagrant sin and rebellion, and they spin with great deception to make it look like those who stand for truth and righteousness are hate-filled bigots, like me. Listen to the words of one man who is in tune with our times. We dwell among people who dangle above the flames of hell by a spider web. We have among us in our churches and our homes people who are clinging to the driftwood of sin who will find out that that wood does not float when the flood of God's judgment comes. I conclude this week like I did last week. How then shall we live? I mentioned four C's. I'll mention them again and expand a little bit. How are we to live as Christians in this generation where Romans 1 isn't the daily, is the daily headline. First, courage. This is a day for courage, Christian. This is a day for us really to determine who we're going to live for and what we really believe. We need to have courage in the face of capitulation. Capitulation means I just give up. I'm going to fold. I'm not going to contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered in God's word. I'm just going to fold and go along with the flow of culture like the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, which has elected a bishop in recent days who's a woman identifying as a man. It's sad to continue to see the church ignoring God's word and encouraging others to do the same in the name of tolerance and love. That is not tolerance and that is not love. That is, that is Romans 1.32. That is, not only do they do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Even this spring, Bethany Adoption Services a Christian adoption agency with really no pressure to do so, announced, just announced, departing 21 centuries of Christian witness, just announced that they were going to now place children with LGBTQ parents. We, we would expect that from a secular adoption service or the government, not one established on Christian principles. We stand on biblical truth and numerous studies that confirm that children thrive best with a father and a mother. And in light of Romans 1 and other teachings, would object to that kind of placement. There is a reason, by the way, that we promote foster care and adoption every single week in this church. That we would remember there are children throughout Louisiana who need a father and a mother. Because the need is so great 
courage rather than capitulation. Secondly, conviction where many collapse. Again, you're going to have to make up your mind who you're living for. The need of the hour is to determine what is the authority of your life. Who are you going to follow? Who are you committed to obey? And the thousands of voices that scream for your attention, who are you going to listen to? The days of blending in, the days of social religion, the days of a so-called Bible belt, they're gone. The issue of the day is, who's standing with Jesus Christ? Who's going to say in the, in the flow of this current The world behind me, the cross before me. Where do convictions come from like that? Where do they come from? The only place I see in Scripture is they come from loving the truth. They come from saying, I really don't, you know, Romans 1 isn't my favorite chapter in the Bible. (laughs) But lo and behold, I'm, I'm coming back to it and... I'm seeing how it's renewing my mind, and it's transforming my thinking, and I see it's the truth I need to live for Jesus in my generation. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 10 through 12 explains where conviction comes from by loving the truth, and and Paul describes here this downward slide, they refuse to love the truth and be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what's false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So Paul is saying what keeps us from being sucked up into the winds of culture is we've got to love the truth, God's truth, God's word. Romans 1 is the truth about humanity's sin problem, something that's been helpful to me in recent days in preaching the gospel to myself. So I'll find myself in the morning saying, I've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of my sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ my Lord. That God demonstrated His love to me, and while I was yet a sinner committing all the sins we've looked at this morning in one way or another, in thought or word or deed. God demonstrated His love towards me, and while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. And because I've confessed with my mouth the Lord Jesus and believed in my heart that God's raised Him from the dead, I'm saved I'm saved from the judgment to come. God is love without denying or minimizing that precious promise. It needs to be clear that the love of God does not somehow swallow up all the other attributes of God and trump them. For God is holy and He is wrath and He's righteous and He's just. And this should cause us to flee to Christ where His mercy is poured out. The church is called to show conviction as our part of the prophetic call that God has given to His people. And maybe you're saying, why are we always on the losing end? 
Because our agenda will always be at odds with this world's agenda. God's people must enter into the issues of our day and be informed and speak the truth in love. This week's podcast is on the question, as a Christian, should I go to my gay friend's wedding? Why don't you listen and find out? The short answer is, is no. Because it's not a wedding. It's not a marriage as God defines it. Jesus said, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. One of the amazing things and awesome things about weddings is that God is doing it. And so it's not a marriage as God defines in His Word. And so I would, how we communicate that matters, doesn't it? To say to our friend, I value our friendship. And as you know, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And based upon the definition of marriage set forth in Scripture, attending is not a way that I can show my love for you best. And conviction is not based upon emotion or what seems right to us. Conviction will never come in your life if you're always sticking your finger in the wind, trying to figure out where the wind's blowing. It'll drive you crazy. Stand on the truth and speak it in love. Thirdly, compassion. Compassion in the face of condemnation. God's people are to be a redemptive people who never forget how much God has forgiven us. Hasn't he? And we, like the Corinthians before us, have been washed from our sins and we're called to go and sin no more. And our mission as the church is not to fix anyone. That's not our mission, to fix anyone. Lord knows we need fixing. But our, our mission is not to fix anyone, let alone homosexuals. Our mission is centered in gospel proclamation. Christ is the one who redeems our lives from destruction and crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercy. Shouldn't we not have compassion when we learn that 80% of all lesbians have been molested or otherwise mistreated by men? Shouldn't we have compassion? Should we not have some understanding that through the humiliation and shame brought about by sexual abuse and destructive behaviors that such hurt has fostered same-sex attraction? Should we not sympathize with those who battle with their, with their own sin natures in ways that may be different from ours? The media portrays sexual deviancy, the homosexual life, as a carefree existence, but such is not the case. Many men and women are trapped in the lifestyle and battle hopelessness and whether there is any way out. Isn't this an opportunity to maybe begin discussions and conversations and to say to them, why don't you come to our church? We're committed to open the Bible and read the Bible and hear what God has to say to us. We're all sinners, you know. There's no place we would rather you be than with us on Sunday. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, all kinds of sinners, all types of sinning, idolatry and covetousness and deceptions and perversions, heterosexual sin, fornication and adultery, homosexual sin. I read some time ago, the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality. It's holiness. And what he's done for others, he could do for you. Like Rosaria Butterfield. You need to hear her testimony. You can read it online. My conversion was a train wreck is the title of the, the article, Christianity Today, some years ago. Listen to Rosaria Butterfield's testimony. She was a tenured professor at Syracuse University, a feminist activist, and a lesbian. She wrote, I wrestled with the question, did I really want to understand homosexuality from God's point of view? Or did I just want to argue with him? I prayed that night that God would give me the willingness to obey before I understood I prayed long into the unfolding day. When I looked in the mirror, I looked the same. But when I looked into my heart through the lens of the Bible, I wondered, am I a lesbian or has this all been a case of mistaken identity? If Jesus could split the world asunder, divide Morrow from soul, could he make my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who, who will God have me to be? Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked, in the war of, of worldviews, Ken was there. Ken was the pastor who had reached out to her and his wife, Flo. They were there. The church had been praying for me for years. They, they were there. Jesus triumphed, and I was, I was a broken mess. Conversion was a train wreck. I did not want to lose everything that I loved, but the voice of God sang a love song in the rubble of my world. I weakly... I weakly believe that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first, then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace, then community, and today in the shelter of a covenant family where one calls me wife and many call me mother. And finally, confidence. Confidence in the face of cowardice. Confidence comes through knowing Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Having tasted His grace, we press forward with hope. J.C. Ryle once said, five marks of a forgiven soul. Forgiven souls hate sin. Forgiven people love Christ. Forgiven people are humble. They are holy. And they're forgiving. Oh, may it be said of us that the Lord was our passion. I have sensed your rapt attention the last two weeks. I'm really grateful for that. May God do his work in us for his glory. Would you bow with me in prayer? Someone asked me recently, just as we prepare to enter into the presence of God, someone asked me recently, you know, why do we have this time at the end where we sing and you stand at the front. That's a good question, isn't it? It's a simple uh, answer, I think, that we really believe that every time the Word of God is opened, it's a call to obey Him. It's a call to faith. Whether you're a believer in Jesus Christ, 
or you're without Him, it's a call to respond to the Word of God. And maybe this morning you would respond. Maybe to put down wrong thinking. To make the courageous effort to search the Word on what you believe. Times like this are a closing moment to reflect and to say, Lord, I want my life to count for you. You said that if I was ashamed of you in this world, you would be ashamed of me before the Father. But if I stood for you in this world, you would always stand for me. Uh, don't get me wrong, that's not teaching a works effort. It's a call to loyalty to our only Savior. So, it is a time to respond in faith and in obedience to Him. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, help us to see and savor who You are. Help us to see that You're stronger than any sin that may ensnare us. That You're better than anything we might receive. That You're wiser than any advice we might receive from others. That You're safer than anywhere our hearts might lead us. Jesus, you are more valuable than any treasure we might have in this world. You are better, and to you we look. Have your way with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.